0: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge.
1: What is going on, everybody? It's been a while. We took a little time off for the holidays, a much-needed break, but Jeff Kopsetta, he can never take a break. Mr. Man had to go get him some online schooling. He'll talk more about that momentarily, but uh, we're happy to have you guys back. And uh, it's kind of a special day for us here at the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast because this is episode number 100, and we want to appreciate everybody who's coming and hanging out with us tonight on the live stream, and each and every one of you who tune in every week uh, now that we do a weekly episode, and I just want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support. Jeff, Henry, how you all doing tonight?
2: Happy one hundred!
1: Thank you. Happy 100 yeah. to you guys, too.
3: Yeah. yeah, good to be here.
1: Appreciate it. So real quick, uh, Jeff, you posted something online. You said, you know, hey, we kind of took a little time off, but there's never time off from learning. And you took it looks like you took a pretty interesting online history course. You want to dip into that a little bit?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Real quick. Uh, so, See, you uh, so you done forgot know, about it? I'm getting into education, and uh, I'm I'm teaching at the at the high school uh, here where I graduated uh, 20 years ago now, and. And uh, but my goal is to get into the history department right now. I'm covering their their Spanish classes uh, So I've got about two years left So I'm signed up for uh, Southern New Hampshire's uh, online history program. So those classes start in February So I thought well, you know, I got my associates uh, a couple years ago It's been a little while so I've got to kind of get back in the rhythm, you know of having deadlines and doing online you know schooling so um my grandfather was a recipient of a newsletter from hillsdale college called it primus and when he passed away it was passed on to my dad my dad still gets the newsletter for whatever reason they they always send him two copies like some weird glitch so i i get a copy and my dad gets a copy and a year or so ago maybe a little longer than that, on the back of this one newsletter they were offering a brand new american history course and all of their online courses are free I mean, that's, that's a no-brainer. So I enjoyed that course so much. I think I've taken three or four more since then, all about history. And uh, so, yeah, this latest one, and it's one of the newer courses uh, called The Second World Wars. And this is uh, put together by, uh, by historian Victor uh, Davis Hanson, who's just absolutely great. Um, and it's, it's just a really unique, uh, not, I don't want to say maybe unique is not the right word, but for me, a little bit eye-opening. Uh, as far as just how detrimental to the human race World War II was. You know, I I just always tend to look at things from the American perspective and um, to lose 65 million people off of this planet uh, because of that war. And America only losing about 400,000, almost really a drop in the bucket. I mean, and of course, 400,000, a lot of guys, a lot of guys and gals that were lost during that war, but nothing like... 8 million in China or 15 million in Russia. So um, it was just, it was a great course I thought I'd share. It and then I, I've just been, been plugging along, taking one on, uh, on station and Winston Churchill right now that I'm really enjoying.
1: Isn't it so, amazing I- when you do something like that, even after all these years and all the leisure reading that we do on the topic that there's still so much more to learn. I mean, the, the vast coverage of what happened during world war two, you can almost read something every single day and not learn everything.
2: Right. Yeah. So it's almost like the more you learn, the more you realize you didn't know (laughs) know? it's, it's incredible.
1: Well, and that's why part of the thing we've always done here is look for other people who know about the topic, because even with the three of us, with all the knowledge that we have, we could still only cover just a, just a little tidbit of it. And so that's why we're always constantly throwing it out there. Hey, if you guys you know you know a lot about a subject, maybe something we don't cover, and you want us to cover it, send us an email to mail call at dot 2com or even better, if you think you can come on and hang out and maintain a conversation with us for 35, 45 minutes and help contribute to the show audibly. We'll be more than happy to have you on. you know we're We're far from snobs here. The, the gates are wide open, and anytime anybody has anything that they can contribute, we'll be more than happy to have you on. Absolutely sorry for that i've been i've been fighting a cold since before thanksgiving and i'm still I still got it up my sinuses
3: well we want you to drink your cold medicine
1: <laughs> my my grandfather's cold medicine which i'm mix with diet coke tonight believe it or not speaking of thanksgiving um how did everybody's holidays go um were you able to do what you normally do was there any kind of restrictions on anybody due to the covid or any medical things or did it just was it just another normal year for everybody
3: we had
2: family come over to my house. So it was, it was really good. I mean, for me, it was the best Thanksgiving yet because of my, my new son, it was his first one. So, sure. you know, the holidays are, are always kind of a time of, you know, re- remembering loved ones that, that are no longer around and, and enjoying all the, all the new ones. So I, I always have good holidays guys. I, it's, it's every year, Maybe my kids like, man, dad, you always say this is the best Christmas ever, but, it, it is every christmas gets gets a little better for you know so
1: i was getting ready to say you're about to go out and do the whole my first christmas ornament shopping routine because you got a christmas (laughs) right around the corner for him
3: yeah yeah oh that's that's good stuff man we go all out for christmas around here my wife's got this place looking like a (laughs) southern homes and gardens (laughs) expo
2: (laughs) Oh yeah, oh yeah! Christmas done threw up in our house. Let me tell you, I got. I mean, I, I've got a, I've got a garden railroad outside out there that's all lit up with Christmas trees and everything. And you know, I've got a, lit up, a light up Christmas wreath on my on my 1950 DeSoto driving around town with it today.
1: <laughs> you know, it's still weird for me, even though I've lived in Florida now longer than I've lived anywhere else. And before living in here, I lived in California. But just because I grew up in Kentucky and Ohio. It's still weird to me to have Christmas without the cold, cold weather and the ice and the snow and the the, the tree change. Well, I mean, I'm down here in the swamps and other than it being 80. What's the 80,
3: temperature down there now, Joe or Don? Uh,
1: this week, it was like in between the 70s and the 80s. And like, I've been trying to go fishing, which this is my first time winter fishing. And all summer long, the water temperature is 95. And now it's like 72, which up north would be considered mm. warm. But down here, it's cold. So. Yeah, I mean, it's just like any other day as far as our foliage goes. It's just instead of it being 98, it's, I think it was 82 today.
3: Yeah. But uh, uh, Christmas is the one time of year that I like cold weather.
1: Yeah, I, I always loved October when I, when I was growing up up north. Um, the the leaf change just always does it for me. And it's so funny because i remember growing up going to stand out the school bus once I got 50 we all put shorts on now I've been living down here for so long once it hits 72 I'm wearing sweatshirts and jeans so I've totally acclimated to the area <laughs> but um I thought it would be kind of fun just to go through a little bit of brief history of the what's the Sculpt podcast and we can kind of see how things developed and progressed um here's a little fun task for th- those in the listening audience and even Jeff and Henry um, Get out of a recorder, sit in a room by yourself and try to put together an hour-long podcast. You'll find it's quite difficult. And so one of the things I always did when we started this thing is I would just book on guests because I knew, even with my uh, terrestrial radio background, I was a producer of a radio show. I talked to two hosts. So I never had that background of being like a radio DJ who sits in a studio by himself talking to the audience. And so for me, it was always weird to try to sit down and do a podcast by myself and so one of the ways I created a crutch for myself was to always book a guest and that kind of forced me to, to track down some really interesting people. I'm not going to play a clips of all of them. I, I do have some honorable mentions here too, but here is the opening of episode one, which we all know aired in 2018, but actually recorded it in 2017.
0: As usual, a Welsh hymn, a hymn of joy and sacrifice. In that spirit, we carry on, ere a or no. And for long as this war lasts, these furnaces shall never go cold. We'll keep them as warm as the voices of those boys singing, and as warm as the greeting from Wales I now send to you. To our boys in the air, on sea and on land, To the people in battered cities and towns throughout Britain, to our fellow workers in the mines, in the factories and the fields, aye, and to the women, God bless them, whose courage is our
1: pride, to you all, a happy Christmas, and God be with you." The German air raids of northwest England would start in August of 1940 and continue on into the new year. The heaviest of these bombings occurred on December 22nd and 23rd and continued on to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. On December 22nd and 23rd, over 272 tons of high explosive bombs were dropped over Manchester, England. On Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, another 195 tons of high explosives were also dropped throughout the city of Manchester. During this time of December 22nd up to the 25th, the Germans also dropped over 2,000 incendiary bombs over the city killing an estimated 684 civilians and injuring another 2,000. This extended air raid on Northwest England would go down in history as the raids on Manchester. We open today's show with a broadcast that aired on Christmas Day in 1940. And as you heard, despite four long days of German air raids over the city of Manchester, the radio broadcaster went on the air to remind the people of Manchester and Northwest England to essentially keep calm and carry on, get up and go to work, do your part to win the war. But more importantly, that Christmas will continue as scheduled. And from Christmas of 1940 up to today, Christmas Day of 2017, welcome to the first episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I am your host, Don Abernathy. And that's when my family knew (laughs) that there's going to be a problem with podcasting when he's in the studio on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day recording his very first podcast that would go on to torment his family for years to come. (laughs)
2: <laughs> that's great man that's the big bang of what's this kind of button. that's great
1: and, you know that was real hard for me um I, don't, I i've been open about this on my other podcast and i'm really brought up on here but i actually have a learning disability i was diagnosed with a learning disability in second grade and even in high school um i did not have to take uh science or math or reading proficiency test um that's the test that you need in order to graduate um high school because I had a learning disability. Even to this day, I can't even do, like, short division. I just – my mind does not process it. But interestingly enough, even though I was had a learning disability in math, science, and reading, in my senior year of high school, I passed my senior year with a D in college prep history. So who knew that the cat who couldn't read, who could not – I like, I literally could not read aloud until I started working in radio and forced myself to – to read stuff. And so when I did that first mm. recording, I had to record that thing like 6 or 7 times to to sit here and read live into a microphone with somebody who has a learning disability who uh, you know, the the other thing about World War II and we talked about in the past, um I got into books. Somebody got me a uh, Barnes and Noble gift card. And I was like, "What the hell am I going to do with this? I don't read. I can't read." And then that's when I picked up the uh, book about um uh, Beyond Band of Brothers, the one about um, Garnier and Heffern. I got it at a bookstore when I was flying back to Ohio um, from LAX, and I, I read it, and it was the interest I had in World War II that encouraged me to read, and I found what my teachers and my parents and everybody had been telling me since I was a kid that I never believed in. It was if you actually find something that you enjoy reading, reading will not be a burden. But if it's something you can't stand and you have a difficult time doing it, then you're not going to. And actually, just like anything else. The first time you do something, you're never good at it. It was reading these books, the World War II stuff, the more I read, um, the more proficient I got, the easier reading got. And now I can, you know, read things and record them. And it goes with Henry's Father's book. And that was probably like the third book I ever had. I read that thing three or four times. I probably had to read it the second time just because I didn't understand half of it the first time. But reading through it, I just got, you know, it, like anything else, it just got easier and easier. So to, for someone to, be in the position which I grew up in to have a history podcast where I actually research, write up things and then record them where I'm actually reading script. You know, I've kind of come a long way in that fact.
3: That That's, that's a very powerful story.
1: Oh, thank you. Well so one of the things I wanted to do with this podcast is I wanted to interview vets, but as we know, it was getting, you know, harder and harder to find them. But being a computer guy, I actually had a customer who lived right behind my shop who was a World War II vet. He got there near the end of the war, so he didn't have a lot of combat experience to talk about. But if you guys are a long-time listener to this podcast, even when I do sit down with uh, veterans who have battle experience, I would never push them into that that realm. I would just talk to them and let the conversation take it to where they're comfortable. And so to me, the fact that he didn't have any combat experience didn't mean anything because I was just interested in talking to people who were alive during the time, just like we've interviewed women civilians who were in the United States at the time and told us what it was like on the home front. And so the first person, World War II vet I talked to, and I'm happy to say he's still alive, and I can look out my shop window and see him out there on his riding mower or selling mangoes out in the street, is one, Mr. Martin Ellix. And here's just a brief, real quick segment from him on episode number two with Martin Ellix. I'm very honored to be joined by a World War II vet, Mr. Martin Ellicks, Thank you, Martin, for allowing me to come over to your house today and uh, spend a Sunday with you.
4: So he we went to Ritchieville, uh, Pennsylvania, and we lived there for a while, a short time. And then the mines around Farmington started opening up. And so he got a job at Carolina, which was one of the uh, mines that ring, uh, was that ring around uh, Farmington. And uh, but they they would not hire you unless you lived in their house. So we had to rent our house out to and so that we lived in a company house.
5: And, and so you and you're, we
4: li- we we lived in that company house probably for oh two or three years. And then finally there was a uh, sort of a war with the a uh, rebellion with the miners. Against the company's policy, and they used they had their own police force. The company did kind of like a, the
1: Pinkertons, but not yeah, the Pinkertons. They were about. yeah,
4: they rode on horseback and stuff. I remember that as a kid, and uh, and of course a lot of people attacked. You know, they attacked each other and had a lot of problems, and finally they settled it up, and we were able to move into our own house.
1: You know, and that's one of the interesting things when you're talking to somebody who's born in 1925 up until modern days, not only did they see World War II, but as in the case of Martin Elks and his family, that little segment of his interview, I usually start off, where were you born, where were you raised up? And we were talking about the Great Depression. And as you heard him say, his family actually had a house, but in order for his father to get a job working in the coal mines, they had to lease out their house so that they can move to the company town because in order to work at the coal mines, much like the old songs say, 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. To work in the coal mines, you got paid with company Chit, which was their coins, which was only good at the company store, and to pay rent at the company house. And so here you are. Here I am sitting down with this World War II veteran, and we do a history on living in coal mine towns and how his dad was basically working for essentially free because the money he was earning at the coal mines Had no value outside the company town. And the only money they actually made was the money leased out his house. (laughs) And so it's always interesting where these conversations go, even if it's not World War II per se, but just life in the 30s and 40s is always interesting to me.
3: It really brings home just how different it was.
1: Yeah. And I think I may have mentioned it before. I was at my uh, grandmother's house or my mom's house and she had, some of the company coins that my grandfather, cause he was born in Eastern Kentucky and he was a coal miner. And then he got tired of the coal mine scene. And then he moved to Richwood, Kentucky worked at my grandma, my great grandfather's dairy farm. And that's how he and my grandmother met before he went off to war. <clears throat> and hopefully maybe playing some of these clips will invite some of you new guys, the new listeners to go back. Cause all these episodes are still available over at WTSP world war Or if you subscribe on iTunes, it'll just download the entire catalog. But all 100 episodes are still available up on our, our website. And if you guys don't mind, I'm going to skip the clip number three. This was an interesting one that was brought to me. This is another interview. But this is a guy who lives here in Southwest Florida. His name is Fritz Linenbrow. And he was six years old in Germany during the war. And uh, I pulled an interesting clip. He kind of talked about growing up in school, how the uh, Nazi propaganda was presented to them. And then there's a, a clip. To me, which is very telling, after all these years, I you know, this is 2018, this happened in 1944, when telling this story, he still has a tear come to his eye, and he starts to break up a little bit. This is one of the interviews that kind of, I just wish I would have known a little bit better, because this is early in the the history of the show. I recorded this at a beautiful house, marble floors, cathedral ceilings not known of the acoustic nightmare it would become. And I would—I literally had to process this interview like eight times to try to remove as much echo. And I've actually had a huge fan of the show tell me this is one of the interviews that he couldn't make it through because of the sound quality. It's not that horrible, but I get it. If you're listening through ear pods, it can be a little taxing. But this is a very interesting and, and um, heartfelt clip from Mr. Fritz Lindenbaugh back in 2018.
5: When we had has to, uh, has gotten to school, we have to stand up. The, the teacher was the one who says "Hi, Hitler," mm-hmm. and the, the the pupils we have to say the same thing. And we even sing sing the song, you know, the national anthem, you know, sure. "Deutschland, Deutschland über alles," and "über alles in the world," you know. This is uh, This brain was stuffed there, you know. Yeah. High priority target. Absolutely, inclusive the autobahns. As a matter of fact, there uh, I remember a lot of times when. There was a, a signal where the train had to stop because there was a train station a couple of miles further down. And when the train stopped, all the passengers had to go out of the train and have to go under the train. Under the train. In
1: case they were strafed by air?
5: Yeah. In case they're you know. We knew always, as a matter of fact, when we got bumped because we had luck we were lucky enough that was the last house of the town where we lived at the time. Mm-hmm. And we could look all the way down to the city of Mannheim. And we could see where the Americans had gotten across the lakes where the bridge was. It blew up, where the Americans walked across the lakes, you know. Yeah. So they came across and there was a dam right there on the Neckar River. And this is where they po- positioned themselves. Okay. there was a fight in front of our house really there was that which we saw on this on, and there were the Americans they have been apart a, a approximately maybe two kilometers something like this they fought and fought and fought until all the Germans got killed were the days, hours, weeks? it was uh, approximately three weeks three weeks something <clears throat> like this there were maybe hundred fifty Germans or something like this. It was ridiculous. And I never forget this. My uncle and me as a as a boy, we been out in the in the attic mm-hmm. and could look there was the Germans and there were the Americans. And shooting, constantly shooting. There's there is also a lot of Americans who lost their life as well. Yeah. I still remember with the Jeep where they hauled them to the cemetery, you know mm-hmm. where they're laying dead on the of the jeep and stuff like this, you know, a couple of that. And I still remember very well also where the Germans, there may be 10, 15 left. And there was, and it was right there where the railroad track was, you know, but I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. the railroad track. And there lived a family. There was a, a, a gate where you could cross the railroad track. There was a gate with a house and there lived the family in there. And there, and we, I got to be careful, not getting sentimentalist. that's all right it, it's such a, a unbelievable memory where a guys called for help, and no one came out of the house and helped. Oh it's too dangerous
3: yeah.
1: I should have preempted with that one by saying you'll hear a clip where it, the subject changes. I, I kind of squeeze three different subjects. Obviously, these are sometimes two-hour-long interviews. That I, I'm trying to boil down to a two-minute. And by the way, if you guys are new to the show, all these interviews, if you go to WTSPWorldWar2.com and click on those who are there, there's eight interviews with people who are live during the time, some combat vets, some in the case of Mr. Lindenbrow, a five-year-old boy literally watching all this go down and you can hear after all these years, how it, you know, that trauma affected him these days. And, uh, and in that interview, he talks about how his, brother who was eight years old, no, 11 years older than him was forced to fight on the b- behalf of the Weimar Republic and all that. And so, um, if you can get over the, I don't know the, the audio, was, I don't feel was that bad there. I, I've gone, no, it was not that bad. I've gone back and cleaned it up and republished it. But, um, <clears throat> that That one is a definitely a good one to listen to, because one of the things I did at the end of that that interview is I asked him you know and this i've it's actually a recurring question I have for these guys who are in their nineties and lived through the depression and lived through a world war and lived through the- era of the Korean War and Vietnam Wars. If there's something you could suggest to the younger generation, what would it be and he had a pretty damn good um, answer on that one, so I strongly suggest going and listen to that one. Still with me Jeff. Okay, we're gonna move on to episode twelve. Joshua Murray from Jay Murray Helmet Restoration. Um you know we talked a while back about my love for M1 helmets and I was like, well I, I'll reach out to Jay Murray and see if he's interested in coming on. And here's a <laughs> I get this question brought up a lot is how do you apply corking and well Joshua covered that on that episode
6: if I had a nickel for every time I, I had a guy ask me that question, I, I don't think I'd ever have to restore a helmet again. <laughs> um, I, 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 when it comes to te- you know, cause so the M1 helmet, um, for your, for your listeners, you know, they, they it's textured
2: mm-hmm. and
6: so they, they textured them because it would knock down the reflective quality. So if you're, If your helmet is wet and you're in the moonlight and it has this cork texture on it, it has a tendency to kind of dull it down just a little bit so it's not so shiny. That's the whole idea behind it.
1: And it's crazy that they thought about that during the production of the M1 helmet, but it took them two mm -hmm. years to realize having Marines wearing white T-shirts in the Pacific, not a good idea. (laughs) Corking a
6: helmet, when 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 I first got going on helmets, I tried everything, everything. Um, even, even down to buying, um, in mixing like drywall mud, you know, if you look at an office wall or sometimes in your home, you know, there's that, the little texture on the wall. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that kind of looks like cork. So, I mean, I've tried it all. And I, I remember, I have a specific memory when I first started doing helmets, I, I went to a hobby store and bought, um, a great big giant cork chunk of like cork, like a giant cork stopper. And I, I went home, and I fired up a um, a belt sander. And I put the belt sander down. Like, I nestled it between my legs. I kneeled down on the floor and put the belt sander in between my legs, pointing at the corner. And I laid out a big piece of paper, and I took that cork stopper and, and started running it across the belt sanding belt so that it would make it um, like cork dust. And I just was never satisfied with it. And I, I, I'm like, well... You're not going to ever spray cork through a modern, Buffalo a modern gun. There's spray no way. gun system. It's 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 just not going to happen. So I thought, all right. So I went in the house and I raided my wife's spice cupboard and I grabbed a basil jar, which is funny because after all these years, I think that was um, about 15 years ago, I still have the same shaker. I've never swapped it out. I'm kind of a creature of habit.
1: So I think it's interesting, the guy who's kind of like one of the three or four go-to guys for M1 helmet restoration to this day is still just putting corking in a basil container from his wife's kitchen hmm. and dumping it on the fresh paint. I have a few more clips to play, but I think we'll take a quick break. I know, Jeff, um, for most of y'all listening to this, you'll be hearing it tomorrow mm-hmm. on December 7th, and uh, well, that's a anniversary in its own right. So I want to let Jeff take over a little bit on that, and then uh, we're going to read a news article or two and then we'll get back with I got three more clips and then uh, we'll go from there. But Jeff, you had a few things you want to say?
2: Oh sure. So um yeah I think it's I think it aligns well that uh tonight is December sixth because I kinda wanted to talk a little bit about that. And uh it spawns from a program that I did last year on December sixth. And it was a, it was a Pearl Harbor program, but I guess the seventh probably fell on a, on a Monday, I'm assuming since it's a Tuesday this year. So I, we did the program over the weekend on the sixth. So when I was preparing my speech, I I started thinking, okay, how can I, you know, how you want to always try to make a connection. Yeah. How can you get people to, you you don't think that they're like Don and, and Henry, that they kind of know this stuff. So you got to try to make a connection with them. And, and it's even harder when well, it's not exactly today that's the anniversary either. That You really kind of lose them. So, yeah. okay, December 6th. So I wanted to think about December 6th, 1941. And that was a Saturday, obviously, since the 7th was Sunday morning. So I, I I started thinking, what was December 6th, 1941 like in Pearl Harbor? What was that Saturday like? And to to kind of set the tone, we have to – first kind of think about where the rest of the world was because on December 6th, we could not have been any further from the war. Mm -mm. Um, You know, we, we had maintained for the most part, a pretty strict isolationist type policy. Um, But of course, you know, Churchill is just camping out on FDR's doorstep, wondering when we're going to get into this thing and and save the United Kingdom. Um, And, but at this point uh, the Japanese empire or what they called the Greater East Asia Co Prosperity Sphere. If you, on a map, if you if you measured that up by square miles, it was the largest empire in in human history. This is bigger than anything the Romans accomplished or Alexander the Great or anybody. Um, they, they they held more of the globe than anybody else on December sixth, nineteen forty one, uh, and the Germans had, you know, started their blitzkrieg uh, in 39 and, and overrunning. Of course, those countries are a little bit closer together. They don't have the logistical issue of, of the ocean, uh, but still overrunning multiple countries in Europe and northern Africa and pushing east to, you know, in, into Russia that, uh, that summer, uh, June of 41. So two very large superpowers are taking over the world, filling it with tyranny and destruction and death, And we've got guys on December 6th, 1941 that were fielding the 17th ranked military in the world. 16 other countries are bigger and better than us on planet Earth. We are number 17. Portugal fielded a larger military than we did on December 6th, 1941. That's something we really need to let sink in. We had six aircraft carriers in the navy, And we would go on in the next 45 months to build a hundred and fifty one hundred and fifty three something like that, over hundred and fifty aircraft carriers are going to be built in the next forty five months. Over two hundred thousand aircraft are going to be built. That is unbelievable to me. So, what was December sixth like? Uh, you know, maybe Friday was a payday. Guys are guys are hitting the streets, getting a new tattoo. <laughs> You know, maybe they're buying the rank that they maybe they just got promoted they're just in time for Christmas. They're probably Christmas shopping. Guys are going around to the you know souvenir shops and buying their kid brother something or, or something to send home to mom and dad for Christmas, which is just a couple weeks away. I mean, you know, where, look around you. People have the Christmas lights up. Some have the Christmas trees. It's, it's Christmas time, folks.
1: And not the uh, mention, Christmas
2: time on December sixth, 1941.
1: And not to mention, we didn't have Amazon Prime with two-day delivery. So people were out shopping <laughs> so they can take the two weeks to, to yeah, snail going, mail. And, in and the stores
3: them. had stuff in them.
1: Yeah, that too. <laughs> right. But, you know, if you're so, in, a, if you're on the West Coast or in Hawaii and you have family on the East Coast, it's going to take a while to, to ship that stuff back. And so like Jeff was saying, you're going you know, all your holiday shopping and you're just out on the town living your life. Right.
2: Right. Maybe, maybe catching up on mail, maybe fi- finally, you know, sending mom that, that letter back that she sent you before Thanksgiving. Maybe it's time I write her back. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, with, with all that said, it was just another, it was just another normal day. And that day just kind of gets lost in the sauce because of what happened the following day. And, you know, what I like to think about December 7th now 80 years ago, we celebrate the birth of the nation on the 4th of July, 1776. But in my opinion, it was the American identity that was forged from the destruction that came out of December 7th, 1941. Uh, As much uh, pain that it caused and and what it did to the world over those following months, um, us as Americans uh, need to also look back and, and and be grateful in in the aftermath and the effects that that day had on on us as Americans and, and on the rest of the world, yes, there was going to be a lot more people that were going to have to die uh, to create the world that we live in now. But some of those technological advances that happened in because of wartime, you know, the, the necessity during wartime has, you know, uh, dominoed into peacetime and has just multiplied exponentially in, in these past 80 years to, to the technology that we enjoy at our fingertips every day.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: so there, there's... There's cause for reflection, uh, but there and there's cause for for pause, um, and as long as we never forget and uh, you know, always remember Pearl Harbor, uh, I think that means maybe our kids will never remember or never forget, uh, never forget Pearl Harbor, and and so on and so on. Because I think that's what, I think that's what our boys would want.
1: And the three of us are of age that we can kind of get a glimpse of what that must have been like the following day because the three of us were all here for nine eleven, and yeah. we remember what it was like seeing american flags on all the cars driving down the street the following week and um probably f- the last time i would think that regardless of what your political ideologies were um that's probably the last time we all kind of got along despite all the nonsense yeah, in the news that's and all probably that. true and um obviously a little different but as far as tragedies and lives lost, you know, we we can kind of understand what they're going through, and uh, so it's, it's I don't want to say easy, but it's familiar to, to kind of put ourselves, oh, that's what it could have been like for, you know, them in, you know, 41 and 42 right after Pearl Harbor, and we heard that on the news after, you know, 9-11, that they made that connection just due to the, the sneak attack aspect and the lives lost, but.
3: Imagine, and you know, earlier, Jeff, you were talking about your, your newest son. We're all dads here. Mm -hmm. Imagine on December 7th, when the aftermath of the attack and you're the parent of an 18, 19 year old son, or possibly two or three of them, imagine what's going through your mind. Because you know, they're, they're going to get called up. They're going to go.
1: And I just, I didn't pull the clip earlier because it's not something that we did. But when I first started this podcast, I still worked in radio and my Stan and Haney show, they gave me a clip and permission to use. And um, I strongly suggest those of you listening, after you listen to this episode, go to the website or download on the app, look for episode four. And episode four, it's a clip, for, it's an entire interview from Stan Haney show, but they interview a. A girl who was on Pearl Harbor. She was in Hawaii on like she was eight years old on that day, and so if you want the first person account of what D Day was like, go to their website or go on the app and look for episode four, and um, you can hear a very interesting interview with a um, eyewitness um, of uh, what happened on uh, Pearl Harbor. But uh, yeah, it's it's just so. I don't know, it's just crazy how you know, we we're talking about this before the show. It's the younger generation thinks, "Oh, that's so long ago." But it's not. We still have people alive and Sally we're losing more and more every day, and maybe that'd be a good segue into this next sad topic. What what can you guys tell me about uh Edward Shames?
3: I I know that Layton uh Leighton Hughes, who we had last time hadn't talked to him a few times. Uh, you know, obviously through all the band of brothers stuff. Um, and actually I think our former guest, Brian Dimitrovich posted something. I mm-hmm. think he had done some stuff with it. I, he was, I did not, I never interacted with him or met him.
1: Yeah. Uh, Brian posted a picture. Apparently he was at a easy company, uh, Get together and was drinking some Grey Goose with uh, Earl McClung. And Shames uh, came over and participated and ended up signing his bottle. But the reason, you know, the name may not sound familiar with it, because as far as I know, the only reference in Band of Brothers is from this.
7: You know what Dyke's problem is, don't you? Mm. He's just another one of those arrogant
6: rich jerks from Yale. Oh, God, not another one of those. <laughs> Division's not going to let me replace him just because I got a
7: bad feeling about him. Even if they would, who'd I put in his place? Shams? Do not ever talk what I'm talking, you got
6: that? Shams Sorry. seen too many war Never, movies, thinks he has to I yell talk? all the time.
7: Both you little crap did not listen to a word I said during that briefing,
6: yes, did so. you? Or Peacock? God bless him, no one tries harder, but he's not cut out to take men yes, in so the that's combat.
1: probably for those sure, of you not who watch the series many times, it's the probably the only real scene you're familiar with the name.
3: Yes. And after, it, you know, Don, after Late and I started really getting to be friends, he, he talked about shames in some of our first conversations. And, and it sounds like he was a pretty contentious guy sometimes. And, and a lot of the other e-company guys thought so. And then I'm like, well, I, I know the name. I got to process this. And then so here recently when I, rewatched Band of Brothers. Then then I see that and I'm like, oh yeah, now I remember that guy.
1: And to be honest with you, I didn't know he was still alive because I, you know, from that one clip, you didn't think too much to do a whole lot of research on him. And so Mm. now I wonder, well, how did he feel? How does family feel about that being his only portrayal? That, okay, he's too much of a hothead to be put in charge of a, a, you know, become a leader. But anyhow, the reason I bring that up, Dateline, uh, December 6th, 2021 Army Colonel Edward Shames, the last remaining officer of World War II's Band of Brothers, which Brian Demetrius pointed out was not the case uh, because he is on the spot with his stuff. I'm just pulling up on our page so I can find what he said. He said, incorrect CNN, Brad Freeman of Easy Company is still alive and well. But back to the story. CNN, Colonel Edward Shames, the last surviving officer, not so much as we just pointed out, of the World War II Paratroot Infantry Regiment, of the U.S. Army, known as Easy Company, died Friday at the age of 99. God bless him. Quote, Shames passed away peacefully at his home, said the obituary posted in the Holloman Brown Funeral Home and Cemetery. During World War II, Shames was a member of the renowned Easy Company 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment the 101st Airborne Division, known globally as the Band of Brothers. According to the obituary, Uh, The story of Easy Company was later immortalized in the HBO miniseries, as we just said three times before, Band of Brothers. Uh, Shames was involved in some of the most important battles of the war. He made his first combat jump into Normandy on D-Day as part of Operation Overlord. According to the obituary, Shames gained a reputation as stubborn and very outspoken soldier who demanded high standards for himself and for his other soldiers. And so I did a little quick search around the old YouTube and I found an interview with him. I'm not going to play the whole thing. Here's a quick two-minute snippet, um, basically talking about where he came from and then what he did at Birch's Garden. Oops, oh, sorry, I had the volume turned down from where I so gracefully faded us out of the previous clip. i
0: had never seen firing from every direction in any direction as I saw that morning. I was born in Norfolk, Virginia, June the 13th, 1922. My family was Jewish. We knew that sooner or later that the United States was going to be involved in the war. I was only 18, 19 years old. I signed up at Fort Monroe, Virginia, to go into the 506 Parachute Infantry. Nothing has ever been before or since of what they put us through including the running, the training, and also the obstacle course that was, we said, developed by the devil himself. Hmm. They almost killed all of us. But on train, troop train, we knew that it was going to New York, and that therefore we knew we were going to go to England. We trained very seriously in England because we knew this was the word to do. And this was in September. 1943. At the Eagle's Nest in Birch's Garden, we were the first ones there. Uh, Naturally, we did what any God-fearing soldier would do. We looted the whole place of everything that we wanted. I got a little bit of the silverware plus a bottle of cognac, Hennessy cognac. And on the bottle of cognac, it says, for the fruit's use only. I kept the bottle of cognac, and I brought it home, and I used the bottle of cognac to celebrate my son's 13th year bar mitzvah. That I brought more men home for my platoon than any of the 200 platoons in the 101st Airborne Division. Of that I am proud of. I was tough. I wouldn't take no for an answer. I wouldn't take a lot of bull. I was concerned with bringing those men home. The mission first, bringing the men home.
1: After he was talking about getting the silverware, I had to flash back. Remember on the scene when uh, Spears was walking through the dining hall and the the uh, yeah. D's running off and then there's another guy behind him? I wonder if that was the Shames character.
3: Is that you talking about when Lieutenant Welsh? I thought Kitty would like this. Is it, you talking about that or no? That's
1: when, um, when they first hit the Birch's Garden, you see, um, actually, yes, you're right. Um, I think Winters and then another guy came up and they smacked his hand. I wonder if that was James, but uh, back to the CNN article. Here's something interesting in Germany, he was the first member of the 101st Airborne Enter Daku concentration camp just days after its liberation, and after the war. Shames worked as an expert on the Middle East affairs with the National Security Agency. He later served with the United States Army Reserve Division and retired a colonel. And then goes on to give his obituary. So, uh, yeah, lived it, not only survived the war, but to live the 99. I mean, most civilians aren't even that blessed, especially of that era, to you know survive all that and then have the good health to live the 99. I think we can all attest that if we're lucky, we will live to to ninety nine. I was talking about go ahead, Jeff.
2: I said I plan on it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, that's where we're a little lucky now with technology. I'm thinking, you know, my knees are bad from all the years of skateboarding, but by the time I need a new knee, they'll be pretty much off the shelf and I can pick one at my leisure. Um for those you watching home you can kind of see I have a a Christmas sweater style t-shirt on. This is actually the WTSP World War II Christmas shirt. And you can't see it at home, but right now it has a picture of an M1 Garand on it. And it says, Dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is an official Springfield Armory M1 rifle, semi-automatic, a chambered in a .30-06 with a cherry stock, complete with an eight-round M-block. Thank you, Ralphie. So I took the line from the Christmas story about wanting the Red Rider BB gun, mixed it up a little bit, slapped on an M1 Garand, and... That's the official WTSP Ugly Sweater Christmas shirt. So you guys can head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and find your shirt there and get one to have for your next Christmas party. You'll be the talk of the town.
3: (laughs) That's pretty cool. I may have to get one of those.
1: Yeah. um, The first year I made it, I sold quite a few of them. A lot of the reenactors bought it. (laughs) Oh, and real quick, while you're there, please head over to uh, dot 2com and click on the Patreon link. We got a, a few new patrons helping to support the show. We are just about there where um, all our overhead for web hosting, paying for all the services to, to restream and all that stuff is just about paid for. So I, I truly want to thank each and every one of you who sign up each month. It's a dollar a month. Um, there is a 750 a month plan. After month two, I will send you a free T-shirt. I actually, I just posted for all members um, from last week that um, I made some new podcast stickers for the What's in Your Head podcast, and I announced that uh, this coming week, this week now, we're going to be giving away some uh, WTSP stickers. Obviously, I'm going to be uh, sending Henry and Jeff some too. Um, I'm going to print up the stencil um, like the t-shirt Jeff has. And then I also do a version of the lucky strikes logo. And so I will send you guys some of those. And those are the vinyl cut stickers. Like you see on the back of people's cars, not the printed up <coughs> stickers that tend to, to peel off and delaminate. Uh, do you want to do your book suggestion before we get to these next three clips there, Jeff?
2: Oh yeah, I can do that. Um, uh, the, the one I'm reading now, not quite through, uh, is this one. I've
1: got to love the green screen.
2: <laughs> this one here day of infamy uh this is written by uh walter lord and, and some people may uh remember walter lord is kind of having uh probably one of the best novels written about the disaster with the uh titanic um that that was a that put a night to remember it came out in the mid 50s so and this one's about the same time this one i want to say is maybe early uh early 50s when it was originally published uh mid 50s somewhere in there but um So uh, along those same lines that that he wrote the other one, just kind of real um, that that you don't get caught up in too many technical details. It's just personal story after personal story, this ship, this ship, and then this ship. And he keeps it all in in chronological order, which is really great. So you just kind of get an overall sense of what that morning was like. You know, there's no backstory. And, And for any of you that have read like At Dawn We Slept, you know, it, it took about twenty-five years for them to write the book. It takes you about twenty years to read it. Uh,
1: <laughs> like what's the war?
2: <laughs> it's everything you could ever possibly want to know about it. Whereas this is like a little uh, you know, hundred and eighty page paperback, you know, throw it in your in your briefcase, read it on your lunch hour kind of thing. Great, great book. Uh, but I also finished recently this one here. Uh I know this is not World War II. This is about the spy ring that helped save the the uh The American Revolution, Uh, Brian Kilmeade and Don Yeager have kind of a series out that they've done on on some topics in American history. And this is the first one I read. And the what I wanted to read out loud real quick, you guys will get a kick out of uh, because it makes me think. uh, During World War Two, you know, the the English, the the British soldiers were were, uh, pretty upset about so many American boys at home or at their home in England. While they're all fighting the war, of course, the overpaid, oversexed, and over here motto came up mm-hmm. in that. But let's let's go back, and this is from a letter written by a cavalry officer. Uh, his name was Lord Walden. Who you know, this is from the British perspective. So they are here on Long Island, and this is what he's talking about. Uh, and this was written on August fifth of seventeen seventy six. Uh, the fair nymphs of this isle are in wonderful tribulation. As the fresh meat our men have got here has made them as riotous as satyrs. A girl cannot step into the bushes to pluck a rose without running the most imminent risk of being ravished. And they are so little accustomed to these vigorous methods that they don't bear them with the proper resignation. And of consequence, we have most entertaining courts martial every day. Okay, boys. They may have complained about what happened in England in the 40s, but it sounds like they were dishing it out on Staten Island. In the 1770s, so I thought uh, I thought that was interesting. And uh, the last thing I want to talk about, we're going to save for uh, when we kind of get into where it all started for us. But uh, so those those are the two books I just recently finished, and one that I'm in the middle of.
1: Have uh, you're talking about takes you 20 years to read it? And I had a flashback before I started reading all these books. I I kind of said earlier that the first book I read was the one about Babe Heffron. Then I had a, a flashback the one of the first books i read I, it was at my dad's house was winds of war have you read either that or war in remembrance
3: yeah that was a war m- i read a long time ago that's
1: 898 pages of like size eight font i mean it's <laughs> it's got a font the size of the bible and it's I, I literally googled it, it's 896 pages that book was like that thick yeah and my dad had like the small travel version and I don't know it was I think it was in his bathroom or somewhere <laughs> I reading, and I started reading I just took it with me but I actually read both of those and uh they're they're fiction but they're it's interesting. Uh before the show and before we get back to the clips uh, Henry and I I don't know how we got on the subject but we we're talking about army men. I'm <laughs> talking about how oh that's what it was. We're going we're planning on doing a future uh episode talking to our kids and and younger cats about what World War 2 and their impressions of it and how it impacted their lives and and Henry's talking about, you know, when he was a kid, he started playing with the little green army men. And I, I made the joke about how, well, they started manufacturing those things in like 1947, and here in 2021, you get out the Dollar General. It's just the same exact mold. You still got the mortar <laughs> guy. You got the guy doing the army crawl of Zim One. You got the radio guy. But I had a flashback. It had to been – I was born in 78. Um, I had to been f- – five or six so this had been early 80s and obviously I didn't know anything about my grandfather and his history and I didn't know the fact that when I'm 43 I would have his first aid box that came from underneath the dashboard of a Willy's but I just had a flashback I can remember to this day unwrapping the GI Joe Jeep the the, the Willies and him looking at it and it had to be kind of surreal to him that when he was 1819 he's you know, he worked grave registration. I'm sure he, around some Jeeps here and there. Something that he related to carnage and probably the worst time of his life to a few short years later, his grandkids stoked to be opening a little plastic version of it underneath the Christmas tree in his basement. That had to be a little surreal to him. I mean, this was early G.I. Joe. This was before, the, you know, they had the Abrams tanks and the B-2 bomber. This was a straight up army Jeep. And I remember getting at and i can remember the the box the, the logo and the whole nine yards and it just it had to be kind of weird i can only imagine probably same thing for your father too henry i mean i'm sure you went down the gi joe trailer yeah on.
3: oh yeah for sure you know in fact i don't know that it was a willies but down at the local dime store i got a plastic jeep and had a like a you know plastic machine gun on mm-hmm. the back of it i remember putting it by the bed at night, sleeping by it. So it'd be there for me when I could play with it in the morning. And there was a, you know, I mean, I'm talking, we're talking, I was like six or seven years old at the time, but back in the seventies, my older brother, there was a show that used to come on. I think it was, was it, it was Combat. about a, 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 like some army guys in the desert, probably in the med theater. Uh, they always went around in a couple of Jeeps. I think it was the rat patrol. Rat patrol. What, yeah. rap, was that it? Rat patrol? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and one of the guys had an Aussie hat. I just, my brother would always watch that show. That was like literally one of the first, I said, oh, I like that Jeep, you know, so he took me down to the dime store and I got the Jeep, you know, and I mean, that that was good stuff.
1: The Rat Patrol is a show that's inspired loosely and modeled on David Sterling's British Special Forces services, which use modified Jeeps armed with machine guns as their transport through the treacherous desert terrain. Who was in that? Tom Greaves, uh, Christopher George, Gary Raymond, a bunch of people we don't recognize.
3: Hey, before we move on, I got a sure. book suggestion. Of Absolutely. You want me to do that? Yeah, now? please.
1: I I didn't want to inundate the entire show with clips from you know the, the the past, but I thought it'd be kind of fun for the new listeners to hear kind of how things grew. This is
3: called Soldiers of Barbarossa. Is that showing backwards for you guys? No, you're good. Okay. Uh, I heard about it on Paul Woodage's World War Two TV, but David. David Stahl, who wrote it, um, was talking about this book as well as several others that he's written, but it is, this book is a collection of, uh, it's outtakes of letters and diaries from German soldiers on the Eastern Front, um, all the way through, you know, from, from the beginning of Barbarossa, um, not until 1945, but, but well on into 1943, but it's, It's pretty interesting stuff. Very good book. And I I love the Eastern front. That was like one of the first parts of world war two that really kind of grabbed me when I was younger.
1: Yeah. That's one of the things I need to do. I keep, every time we talk about books, I keep thinking the same thing. I need to broaden my horizons as we're saying at the beginning of this podcast with all the research and reading we do. There's so much that we don't know. And every time we talk about it, I look at this book that I got for Christmas a few years back. It's called a fatal dive and it's about, German U boats. And so it's like, well, there's, I got content right in front of me. I can definitely expand my horizon. So I think maybe I got another book on read. I'm, just, <laughs> I know I'm slow. I'm just now getting ready to finish up September Hope because I only read probably about 30 minutes a night because all other stuff. But that being said, thank you guys for reaching out to us. And I, I dearly apologize. I'll try to track it down because we had kind of a week and a half, almost two weeks off. Um, sir, your email, I can't find it. I was just browsing through it. But, you know, we do these book reviews and make suggestions. And, you know, I mentioned on the one episode that I found this one on eBay and I was going to read it. And somebody actually tagged me either on a picture on Instagram or Facebook. I looked in our Facebook messages and didn't see it. There. But one of our listeners said, hey, I heard you talking about this book. So he went out and picked it up and he's going to give it a read and let us know what he thinks. And so we definitely encourage everybody, you know much like we said in the earlier show, if you read a book, we suggest let us know your take on it. Or if there's a book you think we should read, please email us at mail, call it WTSP world war And, and let us know what we should read. And, uh, with that being said, if you guys don't mind, we're going to hop on down to the next clip. Robert Glenn, USMC. This was a very interesting interview. This one came to me, uh, through one of my, uh, living history buddies. And, um, I don't pull, I don't have this particular clip in this show, but in his interview, he was laying on a gurney after getting hit with a grenade on Okinawa during the flag raising. And so uh, that's when the war ended for him. But um, he was a barman. And I, and I always remember one of the things he told me when he got there, fresh off the boat, I was walking around, and Old Salt looked at him and said, hey, get rid of the tripod off your bar. The Japs looked for that. Because, let's be honest, a bar from distance, you know, it looks more like a rifle than it does a machine gun. It doesn't look like a thirty cal or an M1919 or a It, He said that, you know, from a far distance, the only thing that really makes a bar look like a machine gun is the tripods to get rid of it. He said he took the tripod off. They never had the tripods. Only time they put the tripods on was when they came back for refit and were forced to go do target practice. They would supply them with tripods. They would do their target practice, take the damn things off, throw them back on the ground, and head back out to the front. And uh, so this is an interview with Mr. Robert Glenn, who sadly, about six months after this interview, passed away.
8: The lieutenant says, I want you to lead this thing. You're going to be the point man out there. And I said, I've never done anything like hey You've been in combat, and we've got to ask somebody that knows what they're doing out there. So they put me out in front and we went a little ways and i say the lord was with me because i heard things nobody else heard and i turned around him, you know held my finger over my mouth you know in a silent position and i moved on and i went around a huge tree that had been uprooted in a, one of them since they had And as I stepped around it, a Jap jumped right up in front of me. In fact, he was so close to me, I couldn't raise my rifle. I just squeezed the trigger where I was at. Well, a sergeant had come up behind me when he, and another one was running off, and he shot him. But then we turned around and moved on, and as I came into an open ground ground, I was out in the middle of it, and I noticed some japs behind a big tree that was off right at the corner or, you know, edge of that little opening that I'd walked into. Mm-hmm. So I just stopped, and I turned around, and I motioned for the sergeant to come up. He came up, and I said, now look over my shoulder, but don't, you know, act any way anything just look and he says yeah I see him I said "All right, then let the others know that we're going to shoot so he went back and let them know and then he came back to me and I said you take the ones on the left of the tree and I'll shoot at the ones on the right well it was two on the left and two on the right I didn't see but one and I shot him. Well, the second one started running off. And I shot him, but he was carrying a suitcase. And when I got to him, I opened up the suitcase, and the suitcase was full of Japanese money.
1: One of the other things we've done a lot on the show, and I've been threatening to do it, and I just started doing it tonight, and hopefully I have the page up by the end of the week, and that is to make a page... You guys can find all the interview with authors. And uh, one of the authors we had on here was Clay Bonnieman Evans, who I had the uh, privilege to uh, attend the Tarawa reenactment in Fort Morgan, Alabama a few short months later. And uh, Clay wrote the book Bones My Grandfather, about his grandfather Alex Bonnieman Jr., who uh, was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. Tarawa, and whose bones were not recovered from the island until 2012 or 2015. So we're going to skip ahead, and here is a brief little segment from that interview.
7: In November of 1943, when he and the rest of the Marines of the 2nd Division sailed for, um, they really sailed for the Solomon Islands, um, where they did some amphibious uh, assault training and then went off to Tarawa. They didn't even know they were where they were going until they were underway. So it was, it was quite a big secret. Like I say, I mean, the way I think of him is, he was just a man of action. He was, depending on who you talk to, he was a daredevil uh, or he was reckless. He was impetuous or he was courageous. But the fact of the matter is, he was a guy who liked to test himself he was what we would call an adrenaline junkie today he you know there's a little story i tell in the book about how he used to freak everybody out because there was a cement swimming pool at his parents house in knoxville tennessee and from the time he was a boy until he was you know a grown man he used to love to to run up the roof of the bathhouse and just hurl himself about 12 15 feet across the cement into the water and just terrify his parents and everybody who was watching he was a guy who did not back down from a fight. He liked to have a drink, and when he got going, he, he enjoyed that kind of thing. Um, so he, he also, uh, it's worth probably pointing out, he, he didn't turn out to have the skills uh, to make the grade, but all the way back in 1932, looking for adventure, he joined the U.S. Army Air Corps because he had hoped to become a pilot
1: now, before we wrap up the show with the final two clips, I want to do a little honorable mention. Um, like I said, I didn't want to do an entire hour just playing clips, even though I damn near did. I hope you guys don't mind. Um, but I want to mention, um, Jeff, are you familiar? Or Henry, have you seen? Because he has a very big Facebook uh, footprint. Image Works World War Two. the photos he does.
3: Heard of it.
2: Yeah.
1: I I actually did an interview with him. Um not sure. Uh, probably episode fifteen or sixteen. I'll have to track it down. Very interesting. He's talking about how he got into Dorney's. and he does these insanely beautiful World War II reenactment photos. He ha- he he's not a living historian himself per se. He found a group of very very fine tuned, authentic authentic high standard group of guys over over in Europe, and he he goes out. And they have the Jeeps and all that stuff. And he shoots these fantastic photos. And so that was another great interview. Um, Another great interview, episode 41, actually had Alex and Ranger, who are both, um, ironically, um, Rangers per se, at the Springfield Armory site, the historical site. And uh, they give the full rundown from how George Washington pinpointed the location where he wanted it built all the way up through the history of the guns that were designed there. We talk about the M1 Garand, the Thompson. We go on to talk about how the Springfield Armory firearm of today is not the same Springfield Armory of yesterday. How the government never put a patent on that name. So after they shut down, the name was bought out, sold a few times. And the current owner is the guy who's making the Springfield Armory handguns and rifles you see today. But uh, yeah, that is not, in fact, the same company. And then uh, one of the early interviews I did on site was the Holocaust Museum down in Naples. Uh, It's another good one to check out. And um, we had Luke Schertzel on here, who was the producer and director of Wonderland, who featured Tom Berenger. But then along came episode number 42, the episode that would kind of change the dynamic and where... This podcast would go,
2: and if and if you'll allow me, and you don't edit this out, sure. uh, today marks the uh, the fifteenth anniversary. It's it's all over my social media, uh, and I'd love to give a shout out to uh, some former colleagues of mine, Fox Troop Ninth Cavalry Regiment. Fifteen years ago today, took a uh, a picture when we first uh, pushed up into Baghdad, um, and we all uh, fifteen years, man. It Time was, flies, man. It was fifteen minutes ago in yeah. my mind. And that's what really helped me harness um, the energy that I could try to give uh, RJ and Chelsea. I, I'm not a consultant. I'm not a historian. Uh, I'm a former soldier. I just wanted to be a part of this. Sure. Because the greatest generation, as we all know, is, is slipping past us. And like I said before, there are so many stories. I have a short amount of time left where I can go up to one of these heroes and say, is that how it was done? Mm-hmm. And... Um, I don't like to think about the day that they're no longer with us.
1: Episode 42, little known fact. That was the episode I interviewed one Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> no, that was the day I was lucky enough to be brought out to a little house on the island of uh, off of uh, St. James City to uh, interview the cast and crew of Walking Point and was introduced to yours truly, Mr. Jeff Copsetta. And, um, it wasn't long after that, I was flown out to Texas and we spent a weekend together and, uh, one thing led to another and here he is, uh, one of the first official co-hosts of the what's the scuttlebutt podcast. And we haven't looked back since. So, uh, that was a huge day for this podcast.
2: I appreciate that. I, I, you know, looking back, I didn't think it was that early on in, in the 100 episodes, episode 42. Right? It's incredible.
1: Yep. And then we had you on, I think, uh, uh, once or once after that. And then, well, no, did I have you on before coming to Texas? I can't uh, remember. Maybe, but, I think maybe we had you on to promote the fact I was coming out there. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and watch. Yeah. And then we did
2: one when you were
1: there. Yeah. We did one on site. And, you know, and it's so weird yeah. going back and listening I haven't listened to this, you know, early on I would put the podcast up and I would listen to it in my car kind of like the radio equivalent of sound check. What can I do better? You know, how's the quality? And back in the day, I didn't have the microphones I have now. I had some low $25 microphones. I picked up every background noise, every burp and every fart. Um, and you know, I had a little tiny mixing board that if I plugged into a laptop would pick up ground noise. And so it took me a long time to get the clear studio sound with the proper equipment that, you know, It probably took me, between this and my other podcast, it probably took me almost a year and a half to get a decent mixing board to figure out, okay, I can't run this all through one computer, um, a little behind the scenes. Uh, my studio, I, to do this podcast, I'm running two computers right now. Um, it takes two computers to put up this one episode. So it took me a long time to figure oh. out I need, you know, because these aren't high power. Even though I'm a computer guy, it's like the guys on that old show, Pimp My Ride, um, you know, or you watch any of these shows on, velocity channel these guys are working on hundred thousand dollar cars seventy thousand dollar cars and they're driving home in their chevette (laughs) same way you know i'm a computer guy but i don't have high-end gaming computers here and so it took me a while to to, even though i worked in radio i wasn't a radio engineer so it took a while to, to to piecemeal all this stuff together on a shoestring on a shoestring budget to get the audio where it is today but that brings us to episode 92 what could it possibly have or 91 a for those you keeping track at home, but what happened on episode 92? Well, it might help
3: Don if you click this button. So that's why they explored things like my dad being haunted so much by his experience and, and Robert Leckie. I mean, you know, he had a harrowing time of it himself. I mean, um, and the Pacific explored that more than band of brothers did now with three separate characters and three separate storylines. You know, I I read all the reviews. I read what people were saying because I was primed. I wanted to know what people thought because I wanted so desperately for people to like it. I wanted desperately, desperately to like it. Um, But again, even though I had, had been coached on what to not compare it to, I still compared it to Band of Brothers. How could you not? And so I'll be honest. And I told you guys this. You know, I watched it when it came out. My wife and I did. And, of course, I was so close to the story, there were things, you know, like the, the damn thing with the 45 and all, well, you know, and there were other things. And I'm just like, why did they do this? Why did they do that? And I was really angry at first. And roll on a number of years to, to basically, you know, now. And it just it's fortuitous the way things work out. But I've, I've gotten involved in a couple of projects that have shown me that the Pacific had legs. It has legs. It's it's, it stands up. I mean, and I think people, the people who are going to care about this kind of thing and who, who go back to band of brothers, who go back to the Pacific. They have an awareness that, okay, these were two completely
1: different projects. And that was big shout to Galen Wagner for hooking us up. That yeah. was episode one. And, and sadly, well, not sadly, Galen Wagner has announced that after this year, he's he's going to step away from organizing the event in Alabama. Hopefully somebody takes up that. Oh, really? Yeah. It's just, it's a lot of work. He's done like five of them. I've known people, you know, Jeff can tell you all day long, the amount of work <coughs> that it takes to put something like that together and then to do it at a place that isn't part of a job. It's literally a, a passion project. You know, he doesn't work for the grounds to host it. I mean, it's just... He had an idea. There's not enough Marine Corps representation in this hobby. He found a location. He actually got sponsored by the Alabama Marine Corps League. He, and of himself, is a retired Marine, and it was a passion project. He did it for five years, and he's he's going to allow someone else to, to carry it on. I think he kind of proved his point that, hey, this is something that can be done. Here's how you do it. There's an interest in it, and he got out of it, what you know, I'm talking out of my ass. I haven't talked to him about it, but this is just from my experience of people who's done it. It's a lot of work. And I think he accomplished his goal and he's just moving on with other things. But I, huge shout out to him. Cause if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't be here. And yeah. e- as we said at the top of the show, episode one was filmed in this room on a $25 microphone on a $30 mixing board on Christmas day. Eve. I think I recorded that at midnight. Oh, well, wow. if you would have told me in 2017 at midnight that I would be hosting episode 100 with a cat from Texas and a fellow from freaking Louisiana, I'm <laughs> sorry Alabama, I would not have believed you. Um, maybe I would have thought well maybe I'd have a fellow Florida reenactor here, but I would have never thought, you know, we would be spread over three states and recording an episode 100. So, um, and slowly building an audience you know it just it still blows my mind um when i i was at that train event and it was funny it wasn't even about the pot he got there through the podcast but we were talking about tiktok and the guy's like yeah i was the guy who mentioned you on tiktok when you're fishing don't flip your kayak over because your phone will end up in the bottom of the lake but i found you through the wtsp and so it's just it's weird how you know sometimes you feel like this just the three of us doing this for the three of us And then when you come across somebody, for example, Jeff, when I came out to visit you in Texas, the first thing that's really happened to me through this podcast, you had a gentleman who was part of your group. He said, not not only did he say, hey, I listen to your podcast, but I went to the same school as your daughter. (laughs) Turns out this cat grew up in my town in Grove City, Ohio, Uh, went to Franklin Heights. Actually, freshman year was the same high school I went to then he moved to the competing high school and at some point he moved to texas and fell in with jeff and was listening to my podcast I was like holy shit small world to actually go to texas to meet somebody who went to elementary school with my daughter and freshman year at the same high school as me and i'm i'm sorry i, f- I forget his name the uh the 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 gentleman you introduced me the when i first he was like the first volunteer there that day i think he has red hair i forget his damn name and
2: uh i'm trying to think myself because i remember the conversation i'm trying to remember you know there's so many there's so many guys that participated Mm -hmm. in that uh uh, it'll come to me hopefully he's listening hey and uh Uh, you know it's yeah that's been that's been a little while i i still talk to some of those guys you know of course i'm no longer doing that for 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 a living um but uh I, i talked to one of them just yesterday and you know, when I started this new living history unit uh, here in Burnett, uh, you know, I pulled a lot of those guys from from over there to, to to double dip and and to help me out here just because they just, you know, they love doing it. And where else can you go bust brass and, and shoot Thompsons and BARs and everything like that for the public? And, and unfortunately, those opportunities are, are kind of dwindling, you know, because of uh, where we're at in the world today and, and uh, the sensitivity towards towards firearms and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's really limited the ability. So I, I'm, you know, we're lucky here in Texas, uh, to be able to do that kind of stuff. Um, you know, at, at this museum here at the airport and for different public programs and at air shows and things like that. Um, you know, because, uh, you can't, you can't take guns out of work. It, it's always going to be there. And, and you know, people like people like guns, people, people come out to, to see them shoot, to, to smell the gunpowder in the air because, uh, you know that that's that's what Henry's dad did, and uh, they did it because they had to, and we do it because of them. You know, I always had a saying: we do what we do because they did what they did, and uh, and we're just going to keep continue to do it.
1: Talking about small world, I was at that event at the um, Van Cassinger Express in Parrish, Florida, and one of the guys from World War II Armor was driving his jeep, and your name came up, and he asked me about Aaron. Your boy, Aaron.
2: Oh, that was Taylor Briggs from World War II armor.
1: Yeah. But he was, we're having a conversation about Aaron. And so it's like, here's, here's another four reenactor talking about a cat in Texas that I know that I met through Jeff. And so it just, it really zooms in on how small that community, the community really is.
2: Absolutely.
3: And, uh,
1: but, um, do you guys have anything you need to plug or get out, get out there and, uh, spread the word about well, I'd,
2: I'd like to talk about where it all began for me real quick. You sure. know, we, we, we talked about this episode, where it all began, the, the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. We wouldn't be here if, if not for that, for that day. And, and I thought it'd be neat to just kind of do a quick shout out on where, where it began for us. Sure. You know, I think that'd be kind of neat to, to take turns. And uh, I, I guess I'll go first, uh, just real quick, where it started uh, for me was I was about four years old. And my maternal grandfather, he, he passed away shortly after that, so I only have a few uh, memories of him. But but this one is is pretty crystal clear, even at that young of age. I had a uh, had a toy uh, Springfield rifle over my shoulder, properly positioned at, at right shoulder <laughs> arms, and uh, on the record player, he put uh, he put this on "Victory at Sea." There's there's a uh, three volumes, volumes one, two, and three. This is. Um, this is the soundtrack to the to the TV show that came out in the uh in the early fifties called victory at sea I think it was twenty six episodes each episode covered a different facet of the war uh all of course uh from the naval perspective and each episode had its own um soundtrack basically had its had its own uh, uh song so uh episode or uh volume one which is what I have here I have all three volumes but volume one is uh to me, one of the best um, at songs like uh, "The Pacific Rolls Over" and "Guadalcanal March," uh, "Hard Work and Borscht Play, "Theme of the Fast Carriers," and "Beneath the Southern Cross." If if anybody wants to hear what World War II would be if it was composed into classical music, "Victory at Sea" is it, and I listen to it all the time when I'm you know building my my scale models or at the background of my office uh, reading it, reading a book. I, I have that on the turntable victory at sea. And, uh, you know, it brings back those memories of being a four year old boy, you know, with a toy rifle. And and it was then that I knew that world war two would always be a big part of my life. And I'm lucky to, to have had the opportunities that I have. Uh, and, and I always knew that I was going to serve. And I've also had that incredible opportunity as well. And I, and I'll, I'd like to mention one more thing before we uh, turn it back over to you guys. Um, uh speaking of those who served um you know some of you know i was in a, a pretty small unit uh in the army that was a, was a it was a selected unit and uh we never had more than about 50 guys in it at any given time and i uh i just got news today that that uh we lost one more who who, who served in my unit um that uh you know he was he was a great soldier and uh just just a good all-around guy and um you know it's 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 tough to uh to be attending another funeral this week for, for a veteran who um, didn't come anywhere close to living to be 99 years old. And, um, you know, uh, I I just, I would just like to mention that, you know, this is, this is not the first funeral I've had to go to now for, for the guys that that I've served with. And let me tell you, uh, you know, they always say, when you, you know, thank a vet anytime you see one. And, and I'd like to say that, uh, and especially at a time like this, in the family of this soldier, that uh, you know, thank the mom of a vet. Uh, moms are, are certainly the, the most unsung hero in our military today. Um, you know, when, when guys are bleeding out on the battlefield, they're they for their mom, and um, you know, they're the ones that uh, that that really truly stand behind every every soldier, sailor, airman, and Marine, and Coastie that, that, we, send, that we send to combat. So um, it, it's, it's kind of a tough thing. It happens. Uh, it happens to all of us who've served. You know, we can't all live to be 100. Uh, but if, if you guys could just keep, keep that family, you know, in, in your thoughts, and, uh, and we're going to drive on
1: No, I just want to intentionally leave a little pause there just to, to give that thought a moment before we went on with the show, but um, definitely prayers for that. Um, I'm, I'm deeply sorry for your loss, Jeff, and uh, we'll uh, everybody put out prayers. How about you, Henry? Um, where did it all get started with you? <laughs> we were jokingly tossing down to Kotlin before we went on the air with, with you in this subject. So tell us about your uncle. Oh.
3: Well, <clears throat> you know, it, it was my brother and me going down to the dime store in Montevela and, and the little green army helmets that they had. Uh, I'd get one of those and a little, you know, the Tommy gun with a little click, you know, a mm-hmm. little clapper in it. And then we would run around in the back in the woods behind the house, you know, playing army, playing World War Two. Uh, and then in the afternoon, we would watch Hogan's Heroes. That was, that was coming on every afternoon, Hogan's Heroes. Uh, and Rat Patrol, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and, and, you know, getting the, the bag of soldiers, you know, the guy with the rifle and the mortarman and, you know, all that. And uh, setting those up and, you know, another guy that was a friend of my brother's, he had a little model of a German Tiger tank. So, you know, just seeing those things and forming a, a visceral connection with it. Uh, And then the movies of the day, like, uh, uh, you know, Where Eagles Dare, which that that came along a few years later with Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton. Um, Patton was another one. Uh, Battle of the Bulge. You know, just any World War II movie that came out, really getting into that. But I just kind of always had an appreciation for it. And then there was a time, I think it was a time-life picture history book that had been put out by Time Life. It was huge. Uh, And it just covered the entirety of World War II, every theater, all the years of it. And I can remember just sitting on the floor, looking through every page of that book, um, being equally fascinated by the European theater, the the Pacific theater, the Med Eastern Front. Um, And then when my family and I would go down to Mobile to visit my grandmother, my brother would always say, "Hey, let's let's go in there and get Uncle Edward's medals out of the out of the bureau in the hall there." And so we we'd go in. He he would have been about twelve. I would have been about five. And my Uncle Edward had been 741st Tank Battalion in the Battle of the Bulge. Um, and we would get out his medals. He had three Purple Hearts, a Bronze Star, and a Silver Star. Wow. Um. Uh, and then in the back room, his tankers jacket was hanging up, and I can remember. John taking that out, I go, man, this is Uncle Edwards. He wore it in the Battle of the Bulge. You know, and even at five, six years old, man, I just thought that was so cool. Mm-hmm.
1: And just to verify it, did, they, the tanker jackets did have a zipper, correct?
3: Yeah, it did. And this one, like, it just had the like the ribbed collar.
1: Yeah, like Jeff's, uh, so Jeff, when you came on before the show, Jeff was talking about how the jacket he's wearing right now looks like a modern-day tanker jacket. And I said, with the color, you can't really see the collar, but it has the same ribbed collar, but he said, well, the only difference is this one has a zipper. And I was like, no, the tanker jackets actually were the few, the tanker and the airborne jumpsuit were like the two few that actually had a zipper. The rest of them Mm -hmm. were buttons up.
3: Yeah. This, this one did have a zipper. It had like a wool Mm -hmm. lining. Um, and I had that jacket for many years. Uh, And there was also the Nazi building banner. I've told you guys about that, that he got, he ripped off the town hall because, uh, second armored went through pills and, and the end of the war. But, you know, it was just that stuff, man. I mean, just feeling connected to it. Um, looking through the, any picture book I could find, um, just having an appreciation for the history. I can remember my family and I were in a restaurant, I was probably about 10 or 11 years old and I was really into the airplanes. And, um, my dad had struck up a conversation with a guy at the checkout line. And apparently this guy had been a Navy Hellcat pilot. Wow. And and I remember my dad said, Hey, this is my son, Henry. And he's, Hey, he flew F6F Hellcats. And the guy, and you know, these guys, we, I mean, these guys were like our age, you know, they were not old men at that time.
1: Mm-mm.
3: And I remember the guy was like, yeah, I wanted to fly bombers, but they didn't trust me with a big plane. So they made <laughs> me fly a little one, you know, and, and I just <laughs> wish I could reach back and, and just go, okay, what carrier were you on? What, right? you know, but uh, I don't know, man. I I feel sorry for these youngsters coming along who will never know a World War II veteran.
1: Yeah. To them, and and as crazy as it sounds, to them, Vietnam vets are going to be the World War II vets.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, there's two times on this podcast I've interviewed people who um, were military vets, not of the World War II era. And one of them was a Vietnam vet, and I asked him, and he it, he never it never occurred to him, and he never processed the thought before. But I asked him, I said, "What's it like to be the last generation to actively fight against communism, and to see where we're at nowadays?" And he's like, "You know, I never thought about it that the That's Vietnam War was the act, you know, that was the act last actual combat against the communist country." And he said, "I never it never occurred to me that that was the case." I said, yeah, because all the rest, all the other modern-day wars are against Muslim nations and other nations, but Vietnam was a truly communist, that's what we were fighting against, was communist Vietnam. But uh, he said he never thought about it, but yeah, it's weird. Um, For me, um, I've told this story multiple times about my M1 helmet, but just the military altogether, for me, when we... When my dad moved my family from Kentucky to Ohio so he could find a better job and provide a better life for us, he got a job at Master Foods who makes cow cans and Uncle Ben's and and all that, and Mars, uh, M&Ms, and all that stuff. He, um, We rented a little townhouse that what we found out, well he probably knew, but what I come to find out later was it was military housing World War II. It was on Rickenbacker Air Force Base, named after the, the – air ace rickenbacker from world war one and so we grew up on this little military base at that point it was basically a skeleton base it was pretty much a stopover for fuel and to leave equipment at and have air shows every year it was it was active but it wasn't like active active and i went to hamilton south elementary school which was right there off the base i'd get up and walk to school I remember uh, the first time I heard the sound barrier broke. was in fifth grade, sitting in class, and (laughs) boom, all the windows rattled because some pilot decided, hey, I'm going to break the sound barrier right over the base. And every year we would have air shows. And my brother was, he, God, my brother's, let's see, when I was in elementary school, he was in eighth grade. And so um, the time I got to fifth grade, yeah, he got in the Civil Air Patrol. And so he had a pass to get on the Air Force Base. So by the time I was in fifth grade, we we're going to the PX on the Air Force Base. We we're going on the Air Force Base, getting our haircuts. And oh look, there's Playboys on the table. <laughs> Shit like that. And they had Sherman tanks. We would just ride our bikes and stop and climb into these Sherman tanks and <laughs> roll the wheels and adjust everything. And so we're climbing in and out of Sherman tanks in elementary school and getting our hair cut on the base and first tape cassette I ever owned, 5th grade. I bought Iron Maidens, Only the Good Die Young from the PX on Rickenbacker Air Force Base. Um, And then off of the base, because it was designed for military living, they had an old defunct um, hospital. They had an old defunct movie theater. And they had miles and miles of flat, straight road. And so we'd go skateboarding down there. And some of the older kids would, you know, break into the defunct buildings. And there was underground drainage ditches you could ride your skateboards in. But long story short, my best friend's dad was a gunny sergeant in the Marine Corps. And so in the summertime, I'd basically spend every day over there with Danny. And in his basement, he had the full-size G.I. Joe aircraft carrier. He had all that stuff. He had M1 helmets laying around and gas masks. And his dad would come home and have his Marine Corps PT shirts on and get up and go running in the morning. Every once in a blue moon, if there was a special event, he might come home in his dress blues and all that stuff. And Danny's mom was retired Navy, and so... My second family, I basically, every day in the summertime, was basically growing up around a Marine Corps gunny sergeant and a former Navy, and he would make us shit on shingles and tell us old Marine jokes and all that stuff, and and then, you know, I kind of lost interest in it until fast forward until, like I said, um, got some Band of Brother books, and when I moved down here in 04, got maybe 08 got my first m1 helmet and then the weight of it and as i said before people coming over who didn't formally have an interest in the topic would pick it up and say wow and then we would talk about world war ii and then that's kind of what got me into living history and the rest is is wtsp history but that's kind of what got me into it and so um yeah just being around uh, danny's dad and his mom and all and spend all that time on the air force base buying old defunct helmets and liners and stepmom getting us stuff from the the old surplus stores and and growing up in kentucky too we'd go out in the woods and play guns and all that stuff and we'd all run around the rickenbacker air force base community in our three four sizes too big bdus (laughs) carrying plastic m16s and just run around the neighborhood causing mischief and mayhem and that's pretty much where we got our start on it but yeah nowadays kids play guns they get kicked out of school. And, <laughs> yeah. they, I mean, just think about it. the fact that we had a activity called guns. What are you doing? Playing guns. <laughs> and how many of us played the uh, one pump BB gun rule? Pump the gun one time and you're perfectly suitable for shooting each other with them at <laughs> a good range. No eye protection. You just go out in the woods and shoot each other with BB guns. I mean, we did all that <laughs> dumb shit, but yeah, it's just uh different times, I guess. Huh? Yeah. Is that what you're looking for, Jeff?
2: That was awesome. <laughs> this is a great. One hundredth episode this is everything I thought it would be.
1: Well, I appreciate it. And you know, once again, I didn't want to spend the whole time, but I, I figured why not, you know, we got these clips and, and going back and yeah. like when I was editing some of these, it's like wow, I I've like, forgotten about a lot of these interviews and going like when I was pulling clips of the veterans I was talking to, I was like, Wow, I'm actually proud of some of these. And uh, yeah. I just wish we had the opportunity to find more vets. I mean, I know they're out there, but sadly, you know, and as sad as it sounds, I'll I'll be out in public and I'll see a gentleman with a hat on or at a restaurant, and usually they're with their adult children, and and I'll go and talk to the their daughter or their son, and your, your your dad serving Korea, yeah, your dad serving World War II, which by the way. We're more and we're more in, what, we're more in talking to uh, Korean War vets. So if you guys know any Korean War vets, send them our way. But uh, it's at the point now when you you meet a World War Two vet or their family, the first question is that your your father? Yeah, how's he doing? He's well. Is he lucid? Because yeah. Obviously, to carry on a thirty minute conversation. I mean, I see cats on TikToks all the time. Well, they do like a thirty second thing, but um, they're like, nah, he he can't carry on a conversation for more than five minutes and it's sad, but yeah, it's at that point now it's like you want to interview somebody, but you gotta, you gotta ask the hard questions first. And that's why I always say, you know, if you know somebody who's able to do it, even if it's from a telephone, we've done them. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've interviewed people in hospice, um, who are more than wanting to get their story out. And, uh, yeah. So whether it's over the phone or wherever I've interviewed People over Skype, Zoom. So if you if if you guys know relatives, guy down the street, like I said, Martin hooks still alive, still Moses Grass, he's still <laughs> he's still out there. So they're out there, and um, a lot of them are you wouldn't even know they're ninety it's five, ninety six. A lot of them are just rolling around like they're in their late seventies, early eighties. So please, if you know them, um, just reach out to us, and we'll we'll do the groundwork and get it set up because. We definitely would love to expand our catalog, and as I've always said too, one of the goals I have is um, get a handful of these to just send the, I all these interviews I have, I have the unedited rough cuts that I would love to just, to, if they're interested, send them to the National Archives. Here you go, here's some interviews. If you can find some interesting artifacts, go ahead and pull them out. But here's the uncut, long form interviews, and just, you know, let somebody do something with them. Cause you know, why should we just be the only ones sitting on, on their interviews? But I think yeah. I th- so, what's that?
2: So yeah. Well said that, that's, that's a neat factor. I mean, you, you've got the, uh, the resource, but to be able to share it, that's, that's what's important.
1: Yeah. And, and that's yeah. what I always tell people is they're wanting to get their story out there, you know? Yeah. I'll edit it and share it with my audience, but I, I always keep the long form version and we'll, we'll do something with it in the future. But I think that's uh, going to wrap up this episode. Episode 100 of the What's the Skullbutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And to be honest with you, that's why we put based podcasts in there, because we know we're going to talk Korean War and Vietnam War or Gulf War, or what have you. So that's why we put the caveat of Vietnam, of World War II-based podcast because sometimes we get off the subject. But on the behalf of Henry Sledge and Jeff Copsetta, we want to thank each and every one of you for hanging out with us and downloading the, the podcast. And Looking at the numbers, we're, our show is growing. Took some years, but we're getting there. And um, thank you to Jeff and Henry both. I couldn't do it without you guys. And um, thank you guys for contributing and uh, making the show what it is. It means a lot to me. I, I don't know if I'd still be around here for episode 100, if it was still doing it by myself. So you guys are definitely, you know, it's our show. It's not my show. It's our show. And I, and I greatly appreciate you guys making the show what it is. And I appreciate you guys, the audience. And um I think uh, we're gonna be back next week and I think we have a couple of guests on the books for the next few episodes, right?
3: I gotta look yeah, at our calendar. John, is John McManus for next week?
1: I believe so. I'm gonna have to look at our show calendar. I got uh Matt DePoma up in a couple of weeks. I think McManus is coming on. Um I gotta look at our calendar, but yeah, we've uh we've been beating the sheets and hitting the streets looking for uh, some more guests to come on. Well, so
3: I need to reach out to to John. Cause, Cause, he had messaged me right after I was on Paul Wood Edge's World War Two TV, and then I back and forth. I'm like, "Hey, I, I co-host a podcast. Would you be on it?" And I'm reading one of your books right now. One of my co-hosts, yep. or both of them, love your book. You know, so yeah, I need to reach out to him and confirm. Uh, but I want to say it was the middle of December.
1: Yep. And so thank you guys so much, and we will talk to you next week. This has been a Digital 410 production.